0: COVID cases continue to rise in the U.S. as the Omicron variant proves to be highly transmissible. The rise in infections has reignited the conversation over masks and how some doctors and healthcare systems are saying that cloth masks may not be enough. They're recommending that you pair them with surgical masks or upgrade to other options like KN95 masks. For more on what to know about masks, we'll speak to Nidhi Subaraman, science reporter at The Wall Street Journal.
1: So we've seen masks come back up in conversation, chiefly, I think, as you pointed out, because experts are worried about how transmissible Omicron is among people who are not vaccinated, but also even among people who are. So though we know that vaccines are, uh, you know, a top form of Checking the virus, either from getting sick uh seriously, people are looking to other aspects of defences against the virus, like masks, in order to stop this more transmissible variant to the extent that we can.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing the response already come from uh, companies and uh, and other places. For example, my wife, she works in an office. They were supposed to go back to work this week after the holiday break. They sent an email out saying nobody's coming back. We're working from home this week. And now the only acceptable mask to wear in the office are the KN95 masks, which they provide them and all. But still, they're, they're setting those limits already saying, you know, this is the only thing you can wear for now.
1: That's really interesting. We've heard from doctors who are recommending that people switch over to a stronger version of a mask beyond just a cloth mask. I think since the beginning of the pandemic, there has generally been an accepted understanding among experts that the more sophisticated masks offer better protection, but that any kind of masking offers some level of barrier against transmission of this virus. We know and we have known for some time that they are transmitted in droplets when you breathe in and breathe out. And people initially suspected that even the tinier, tinier particles might carry the virus. And since then, it's been confirmed that they do transmit as well in these tiny droplets. And the more robust masks, the KN95 grade or the N95 grade can better stop those tinier particles from spreading as well. And, you know, with Omicron being so widely prevalent. I think the thinking is that your chance of encountering this is increased. So if you can protect yourself and protect other people, this is something you, you should be able to do.
0: Right. In your article, you posted a, an interesting graph that kind of shows, you know, how long it would take to be exposed to COVID. You know, if somebody was infected and wore a mask or didn't wear a mask, vice versa, what kind of mask, and you know, in a person that was not infected, if they were in the same room, how long it would take. And If nobody's wearing anything, you know, in a matter of 15 minutes, you've been exposed and you could be infected already. You know, if you start wearing these surgical masks and N95 masks, you know, it it obviously takes a lot longer. If both people are wearing surgical masks, it could take up to an hour before uh, you, you might be infected. If you're wearing these N95 masks, it's like 25 hours, you know. So the type of mask, the protections they provide, the better they are. Obviously, they do help out a lot.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And some of it has to do with the way they are structured in terms of the layers that they are placed one over the other. Some of the KN95s, uh, some of the surgical masks have a material that is like a plastic that has an electrostatic charge that traps the particles better. So better, you know, stops them from moving around. The other thing that experts point to really as far as making the most effective use of these is really the fit. So I know it's easy to have, if you have your glasses on and your mask underneath and you sort of shift it around so that it doesn't fog things up, but really having a super tight seal around your face is part of making sure that these are working as they ought to, because in as much as you want the particles from being prevented from going through the masks, if they're coming up over your nose or, you know, in gaps, that is something that one needs to be watching out for
0: as well we know that the, obviously the conversation is going around right now that's why we're talking about it but w- what is the official guidance from the CDC right now on this because they're not saying they're not they're still you know they want any, anybody to mask up anyway as possible just to help out as much but they have even said you know maybe double masking is a smart choice
1: yeah i think there are some experts who would like the CDC to come out pretty specifically and say this mask over that mask and say that some masks are better than others or even recommend people use a certain kind of mask. The time this came up recently is uh, when the CDC changed its isolation guidelines for people who've been infected with COVID-19 and they proposed that they can come away from isolation if they're asymptomatic after five days potentially, but keep a mask on for a certain period of time after that to keep protection at its max.
0: Well, we'll see how the conversation continues around this. Obviously, we're seeing the Omicron variant spread very quickly. So just uh, be safe and and protect yourself. Nidhi Subaraman, science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In a concern for military readiness, we're looking at 30,000 active duty service members that still have yet to be vaccinated despite mandates and some deadlines already passing. Now, to be clear, the vaccination rate stands at more than 97%, but some are instead resigning or facing honorable discharges rather than taking the shots. Lawsuits are pending and thousands have requested religious exemptions, although none have been granted. For more on all this, we'll speak to Melissa Hernandez, reporter at the LA Times.
2: It's an interesting thing because, you know, obviously when we think about the military, we think about the fact that these are people who are given these lawful orders and they're told to abide by these orders without really questioning it. And this is one of the first instances where we're really seeing that pushback and that defiance from troops who are making this claim and putting their stake in the ground by saying, no, I understand I am a soldier of the military and I am part of these branches, but I'm going to refuse that. It's been something that has been an interesting thing to follow because it's been evolving so fast. I mean, as you mentioned, we do have 97% of our forces are fully vaxxed, which is fantastic. But when you have this microcosm of about 30,000 active duty service members that are defying this mandate, that brings up the question of military readiness, which is essentially the biggest concern that we have. So it's been very interesting, you know, obviously getting to talk to people and hearing their perspectives on it and the various reasons of why people are choosing not to get vaccinated you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting.
0: Totally. No. And, th- and that's uh, what I wanted to point to next, right? You know, we hear a lot of stories. We know there's a lot of uh, service members that are already going through it. And some of them have made the choice to not get vaccinated, maybe leave, resign, however. But you did talk to a couple of people, uh, some young people, cadets at West Point, in fact, who are starting their careers, basically hoping to become officers going through that whole route. And uh, I think you spoke to a pair of people who resigned who left west point because of this
2: that was very interesting because you know i'm sure if you're familiar with the military you understand that when you sign up for this there is an initial commitment that you have to fulfill whether that could be 4 5 or 6 years and what we're seeing is cadets at west point or even just that enlist in the army 18, 19 years old are rescinding now their commitments and they're choosing to step away, most of them with honorable or generally under honorable conditions. And there's a big difference between both of those. But it's interesting because it makes you think, so what happens to these people that choose to leave early after the military has already invested so much money into them? You know, at West Point, there is a two-year commitment after you start, where if you leave after your first two years, you do have to pay that money back to the military. So It kind of makes you think, like, what are the reasons of why people are leaving? Obviously, we heard an array of things from everybody that we spoke to, but it makes you wonder what happens to these people. You know, when the military has invested so much money, in the case of West Point, I think their tuition is about $400,000. We put all this money into them and now they're leaving. That's something to think about.
0: And tell me a little bit more, if you could, about the discharge, because it is an honorable discharge if you do refuse this. So at least for, for some people getting a dishonorable discharge. I mean, all that carries all sorts of other implications for your future. So at least they're not going that way, which is pretty good, I guess.
2: Absolutely. And the fact that they're not getting dishonorable discharges is something that has been as of recent. So President Biden did sign the National Defense Authorization Act on the evening of December 27th, And there is a specific clause in there that does prohibit dishonorable discharges for service members who are refusing to get vaccinated. Now, when we were writing this story in the middle of December, that was not the case. At the time, the military and particularly with the army, who was the ones that I spoke to the most, they had plans in place to start dishonorably discharging troops who were refusing the mandate. So now we're seeing that people are getting to separate from the military for refusing these lawful orders, but they still get to keep all of their benefits and all of their pensions, all of their VA stuff. So that's a very, very interesting development. And that was something that came up as we were writing. So it was a lot of back and forth and trying to figure out what exactly is going to happen to these troops going forward. And even as of now with the Authorization Act signed, we don't really know because those policies by the Secretary of Defense and all of the individual military branches have not been solidified
0: when people are talking about reasons why they're refusing the vaccine, what are you hearing? I'm assuming it mirrors a lot of what we see in the general public. Vaccines might not be ready. They're too new. I know there's a lot of people looking for religious exemptions, although I think uh, there's been a lot of those put out there uh, or requests for them, at least And the military hasn't granted any of those.
2: No. So we've seen across every single military branch that there's been Receivable of thousands of religious exemptions, and every single one of them has been denied. Now, obviously, people that I spoke to, there was a gamut of reasons why they chose not to get vaccinated. Some of them were religious reasonings, and they all had their reasons to cite. But what was interesting is some of the reasons that I also got was just the fact that people don't want to be told what to do. And that is ironic when you're hearing that from the military coming from, you know, (laughs) you're given a lawful order, you are told this is what you have to do, and you get that pushback of being told no. So it's a gamut of things. I mean, obviously, people do have concerns over vaccine safety, which is understandable. But, you know, when you talk to people that tell you that, you know, they've served deployments and they were back Marines where they took the anthrax vaccine, which at the time when anthrax came out in the late 90s, when they mandated it, there was controversy surrounding that. And people did push back, but not to the extent that we're seeing with the covid vaccine.
0: Right. So and the military been, has a long history of of mandating these th- vaccines and, and all this other stuff, health for health reasons to keep the troops healthy.
2: Absolutely. And it all boils down to military readiness. And that is the most important thing. Obviously, we need to make sure that troops are safe and that they are protected, because if they do get called to service, especially those who are active duty, we need to make sure that they're ready. It was the same thing like when the flu vaccine came out, like around the World War II era, when they started mandating it. There were reasons why the flu outbreak did not overtake a lot of the military branches because we had this vaccine in place and there was that trust in science that the vaccine was going to protect our soldiers. And that same motif is carried over with the COVID vaccine as well.
0: Well, we'll see. This is an ongoing story. I know there's some deadlines that have passed. There's others that have yet to come. You know, in the end, we'll have to see how many troops do leave or or get uh, discharged. But an uh, on, ongoing story for now. Melissa Hernandez, reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Continuing on the COVID front, Omicron has definitely thrown a wrench in back-to-school plans for students, as many districts shifted last minute to remote learning after the holiday break. For parents, the constant changes have left them frustrated, trying to adjust to evolving plans and confused on what to do. For example, in Chicago, Public schools closed on January 5th following a dispute between teachers and district officials over how to handle surging COVID-19 cases. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot slammed the decision and said we should be keeping kids in school where it's safe. I think it's important that we
3: reaffirm our value statement and our commitment to our parents and our students. That's why we're here. We're here to build an education system that wraps its arms around our young people. And as I stand before you tonight, I have to ask myself again, why are we here in this moment? Why are we here again when we know that the safest place
0: for our children is in school? Why are we here again when we know that our schools are safe? For more on all the shifting school guidelines, we'll speak to Maggie Astor, reporter at the New York Times.
3: Really, we have a big mishmash of different policies at schools across the country. Oftentimes, even within the same family, if you have children of different ages at different schools, you might have one child whose school is in person, one child whose school is remote, you know, one child who's School is doing a hybrid arrangement where you can choose, or they're remote part of the week and not the other. So, just keeping up with what the policies are can be very difficult and stressful for parents. And then, of course, the stress of dealing with these changes at the last minute. Parents who work and don't have easy access to childcare suddenly having their children be home when they fully expected them to be in person. You know, or parents who are having to make tough decisions with kids who might have underlying health conditions, um, who might be high risk, or have high risk family members, and their school is in person, and the parents are agonizing over: Well, do I send them in? There's no remote option. Should I just keep them out of school entirely for a week? What do I do? And it's just a situation where, in most cases, there aren't any ideal answers and Parents are having to figure out what to do among, you know, they have to figure out what the least worst option is. And they've been doing that for two years and they're exhausted.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you're right. You know, there's parents on both sides of it. Parents that want their kids to be learning in person. Parents that want to keep their kids learning remote for fear of them getting coronavirus, spreading it to the family members. One of the things that struck me in the article, too, is that many parents said you know, when it comes to procedures to be safe, masking, all that stuff, many parents didn't trust other members of their communities to take these precautions. And that adds to that frustration. Uh, You know, you can send your kid to school with a mask and tell them to be safe, but you don't trust that other people are doing that same thing with their kids.
3: Yes, absolutely. You know, and I think that's sort of a microcosm of what um, we've been seeing in many areas throughout the pandemic with a lot of Bitterness and resentment where people think, you know, I'm doing everything right. And other people, people who aren't wearing masks, people who aren't getting vaccinated, this anger at people who aren't doing enough when you're doing so much. That is definitely present here. There was uh, one woman who's, quote, stuck with me, a, uh, a New Yorker. She has a five-year-old daughter. Her daughter's school is operating in person, as that's public schools in New York City are. And she had to decide whether to send her daughter in, and she ultimately did. But she's terrified because the family lost a grandmother and almost a grandfather, too, to COVID in April 2020. So they've seen very personally how the disease can strike. And she said to me, quote, that's the hardest part for me, knowing how badly it can go, how mysteriously this virus can affect people and feeling like I have to send her out to take her chances with it.
0: Yeah, that's got to be one of the most confusing parts of it, too, because, you know, not everybody has been touched by the virus in the same way, obviously. And when you talk about that, right, this that mother had uh, somebody in their family get severely ill and pass and all that. But, you know, by and large, kids don't get affected in the same way. I know a lot of them have some underlying health conditions. But uh, it doesn't affect kids the same way. So a lot of people make that argument saying, you know, it's the safest place for kids to be in school. This is just to illustrate how difficult the conversation is and how frustrated, to your point in this article, right, how frustrated parents are with so many changing guidelines.
3: Yeah, and absolutely. And certainly the evidence is clear that the risk to children is on average much lower. But of course, parents are looking at this and Even if their child doesn't have underlying conditions, they're looking at this and saying, well, much lower risk doesn't mean low risk. And, you know, how much am I willing to tolerate? How does Omicron change the calculus? Because there has been somewhat of an increase in pediatric hospitalizations lately, even though the odds are still much lower than for older people. And there's just a lot of uncertainty. People feel like maybe once they sort of had a grip on what the risk calculus was and now Omicron's changing it, or they understand that in their personal circumstances the risk is very low, but right. they've seen so much death and so much horror around them for so long that it's just really difficult to believe that it's safe. And really the the uncertainty is what a lot of them expressed most of all, whether they were scared of sending their kids to school or whether they really wanted to send their kids to school and they were angry that the school was going remote when they felt it wasn't justified. There's just none of them were happy, regardless <laughs> yeah. of what their school was right. doing, because there are no good situations and,
0: here. And it's tough for the parents, as we've been talking about, the students themselves, obviously the teachers. Uh, it really is a problem all around. And, and just to think that anytime we're getting back to normal and then the disruptions happen repeatedly, because of the pandemic it's just a frustrating thing here so we'll keep an eye out and see how these uh, return to school plans work after you know some of these school districts have already called it off for a few days Maggie Astor reporter at the New York Times thank you very much for joining us thank you don't forget to join us on social media at daily dive pod on Twitter and daily dive podcast on Facebook Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive weekend edition.